Welcome to New York Now. I'm David Lombardo, host of WCNY's The Capitol Press Room. On today's program, we're going to highlight the big education issues in Albany, including a fight over state funding for public schools. And it's a fight education stakeholders probably didn't expect they'd be in with Governor Kathy Hochul, who, upon taking office as the state's chief executive in 2021, has championed the long-awaited implementation of a fully funded foundation aid formula, which is the way the bulk of state aid dollars are distributed to nearly 700 school districts in New York. And while the governor is proposing to spend more than $35 billion on public schools, yes, that's B with a billion, a new record and the highest per pupil in the country, the increase is short of what school districts around the state had been anticipating, and more than 300 districts say the planned distribution of funds would result in cuts to their state aid. The fight is far from over, though, with the Democratic majorities in both houses of the state legislature expected to secure additional funding for public schools, because that's the way the budget dance goes in Albany. But how much more state lawmakers can secure for education is an open question, as there is a lot of demand for state resources above and beyond what the governor proposed in her budget. And while negotiations over public school funding will consume a lot of the oxygen at the Capitol for the next two months, it's not the only education issue on the table for state lawmakers. To help make sense of this big picture, we're joined this week on the Reporter Roundtable by Caitlin Cordero, the education reporter at the Capitol for Politico New York, and Austin Jefferson, a reporter for City and State New York. Well, Caitlin, I'm hoping you can kick things off by giving us some of the highlights from the governor's education aid proposal, which, as I mentioned at the top, is a 35-plus billion dollar expenditure. Yeah, so the the education aid proposal is an $825 million increase, um, but the part that has kind of created some um, contentious debates uh, in the legislature is that 337 of the state's districts, so that's slightly more than half, are receiving $167 million in cuts to school aid. Um, And so that's a result of her proposal to reduce the amount of districts that are on hold harmless, or some call it safe harmless, which is a policy that prevents districts from losing state funding year to year. Um, So this was something that was not anticipated to be in the budget proposal. Um, But on top of that, it was the the education department requested a $1.3 billion increase, which they did not get. Um, And the reason for the smaller number is the fact that on top of reducing uh, hold harmless or save harmless, The governor also is proposing to change the way the consumer price index or the inflation value in the foundation aid formula is calculated. So rather than it being calculated the way it normally is, which um, by SED's uh, proposal, it would be, or the state education department's proposal, it would be a 2.4% increase um, inflation factor. Uh, or 3.8, sorry. It was uh, 3.8% for the state education department, and the uh, the Department of Budget pushed that down to 2.4, um, which is a significant decrease, and that's resulting in a $331 million decrease in foundation aid for schools. Um, so that's, that is the largest part of the decrease that we're seeing and what uh, districts and school advocates are extremely upset about. Um, And that's kind of 
the those are the two components that are really being talked about with the uh, with her proposals for school aid right now. Well, Austin, let's talk a little bit about the reaction from education stakeholders as well as state lawmakers. For example, are we seeing just Democrats have concerns about this? Is this a Republican issue? What's sort of the pushback, if any, uh, that the governor is getting to this uh, education proposal? It's really across all party lines. I mean, I think the main issue lawmakers are feeling is that, you know, why is my district getting uh, cuts to their school districts when, you know, other districts are getting increases, which I guess almost plays into the narrative from the, the Hochul administration that, you know, we're going to see increases and decreases, like the top line numbers going up. Um, so all in all, we're increasing aid to schools. But I think on the ground, people are seeing like, OK, we're going to get, you know, say nine million dollars less to my mm -hmm. district. Why is that happening? I mean, I believe Mount Vernon and Westchester, they're seeing a slight cut in funding. And by the state's own admission, that school districts are starting to falter financially. Hmm. I, I think there are fears that, you know, if we're getting rid of Save Harmless on top of seeing uh, cuts in this proposed budget, I mean, how bad can things get for some districts? Well, Caitlin, what is the impetus for this budget proposal from Governor Kathy Hochul? Because it seems to run contrary to the education aid proposals that she's advanced in her first two uh, budgets as governor. Yeah, so that's kind of been the the confusion, I think, was, was part of when this budget rolled out. There was a lot of confusion regarding what she's proposing because she has been kind of a champion for, for education. She had these historic increases last year, um, but she's been saying that this is not, the increases are not sustainable. Um, and, you know, in talking about the budget, she's been saying that Talking about, you know, for the districts on Long Island that are seeing cuts, saying that they have surpluses that they need to spend. Um, and then she's also been talking about enrollment. And we know that enrollment has been on the decline um, in New York State for public schools over the past decade. And significantly, there was a transition during the COVID-19 pandemic uh, where parents were putting their kids into private school or homeschooling students. So we haven't seen the enrollment trends kind of come back up from that. And so this, this move seems to be kind of opening debate over how do we solve for these enrollment issues in the state and how do we move forward knowing that we can't sustain these levels of funding. Now, everyone in, you know, advocates in the education world, they agree that we do need to find a solution to the foundation aid formula, which is based on, you know, some of the components are from the 2000 census, the poverty data, which is inaccurate. So aspects of it need to be changed, but the education department is saying that needs to be done over three to four years and not over the course of one year. And also pulling out hold harmless in a way that, or safe harmless in a way that is just, you know, very sudden without understanding the ramifications. So not to date myself here, but this is my 13th or 14th state budget. And over that time, we've seen uh, proposals from the governors, uh, whether it was Cuomo or uh, now Hochul and the legislature, whether it was uh, Republicans in the state Senate and Democrats in the assembly or now Democrats in both houses uh, coming over the top with their own education aid proposals. And then finally, uh, they hammer out something that is above what the governor initially proposed. Caitlin, are you anticipating that same sort of 
two-step, three-step uh, dance to play out here? Is it likely that a final budget deal is going to have a, a dollar amount in excess of what the governor's proposing? Yeah, so I think that you know, typically the governor goes lower, the legislature goes higher. So we'll see a higher number in those one house bills coming from the assembly and the Senate. And then they typically meet somewhere in the middle. Um, but it is going to the issue here is that we've seen the governor deliver two late budgets back to back and school school uh, superintendents need to get a vote on their budgets and they need to put out to their voters, inform their voters on what their budget is going to look for, look like. Um, so if they don't have an idea of, oh, is it going to be this higher end of the scope? Is it going to be this lower end? What is the middle ground going to look like? Are they going to still have cuts? Are we going to see any increases? There's a lot of uncertainty. And with all the superintendents that I've talked to, they're really in a difficult situation, especially if as the precedent that has been set with late budgets back to back, if that continues, it's going to be very difficult come you know, time for them to t inform voters on what they're proposing. So we've been talking about education aid dollars in the hundreds of millions of dollars, if not the billions of dollars. But there is some education money in this budget in a much smaller context. We're talking about $10 million that Governor Hochul is advancing for a new literacy initiative. Austin, can you talk us uh, through what the governor is hoping to accomplish in terms of making an investment in uh, increasing early literacy rates? I mean, it's maybe even been a, like talked to death a bit. But okay. I mean, there's been learning loss as a result of the pandemic. And I mean, there's... Real fears that kids and schools today, especially in New York, are going to see real setbacks as far as their ability to comprehend, you know, words. Um, so I think the idea is rather than, I mean, it's an anachronistic term at this point, but, you know, uh, using a hooked on phonics approach, <laughs> um, sort of teaching kids the what and why of words as they're going to read rather than just throwing them literature and sort of just letting them discover that and guiding that. Um, I think some of the issues that are arising out of that, though, are uh, teachers in some districts and I guess some parents, too, they are a little bit worried about not having autonomy within the classroom to sort of meet kids' specific needs. Um, I mean, it's scientifically you know, proven that this approach does work a bit better than things we've seen in the past, but I think there are fears that you know, kids won't get that specialized sort of um, a strategy for what works best for them as they learn to read. Kaylin, as I mentioned, this is a $10 million proposal. So is it that big of a deal? And when we think about a budget that's got $35 billion for education aid, is this really a massive sea change in how we're educating kids? Yeah, I think it's it's a small amount of money compared to the, you know, the rest of the, the state budget. Um, but what we're looking at is $10 million that's going to train 20,000 teachers um, and then on top of that, you're going to have the education department is going to implement best practices. So that's where the real change is going to come. Um, they're going to implement best practices that districts then have to implement into their schools by 2025. And that has to be approved by the education department. Um, so I think that's kind of where you have the, the real um, change that mm -hmm. will come. Um, I mean, the $10 million will be used for training and then also for micro-credentials for teachers. Um, but in terms of the implementation, the, the teachers' union tech tends to push back on 
any sort of mandate on things like this. Um, so the, the way they have done it is that there still is local control, um, but they have to uh, abide by the best practices put out by SED and they have to be approved. Well, you mentioned the teachers union and with the minute or so we have left, you've reported a little bit on the ongoing negotiations over teacher evaluation, something that's kind of happening below the radar right now as we talk about dollar amounts. What is that issue right there with the potential future of uh, teacher evaluations? Uh, you got about a minute. Yes. Yeah, so they are there. There is negotiations going on. And I think there's a hope that they can get this put into the budget to do an overhaul of the teacher evaluation system. Um, it would have more local control. So uh, school districts would be able to create a new system and then it would have to be approved by the education department. But the timeline for how that's gonna be rolled out and the uh, transition period is still being negotiated and talked about. Something we anticipated would be agreed upon in last session. Um, but at the end of the session, they weren't able to get it to the finish line. So um, we're hoping they're hoping to see it put into the budget um, in into the budget. But if not, then it will be its own legislation. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. We've been speaking with Austin Jefferson of City and State New York, as well as Caitlin Cordero of Politico New York. Thank you both for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And make sure to check in every week with New York Now as we bring you updates on the education issues we just talked about, as well as other news and analysis from the state capitol. You can also visit our website for daily updates at nynow.org. But now we're going to turn to a conversation with Amy Godin, author of the new book, The Black Woods, which reveals the relatively unknown story of black pioneers in the Adirondacks. The story focuses on Garrett Smith, an upstate abolitionist in the mid-1800s, and here is Amy Godine's interview with my Capitol colleague, Dan Clark. Amy, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. I am so glad to be here. Thank you. Of course, anytime. So this is just such an interesting book, and I think it's an interesting area that a lot of people don't know about and have never looked into. Mm -hmm. And you have 500 pages, including appendices, of just research and this story that a lot of people wouldn't know about. At the same time, this is a, this is a time in New York history kind of conflicted a little bit where you have uh, this movement of black people being donated this land to go into the Adirondacks, but you also have pro-slavery interests in New York. This was mm -hmm. the 1840s, 50s, around that time. Mm -hmm. Did you feel that tension while you were writing it of these kind of opposing forces? Well, the opposing forces really are what gave rise to the idea for Garrett Smith's giveaway in the first place. He could see that at the um, constitutional convention in New York in 1846, pro-slavery interests would dominate and call the shots. And mm. once again, there would be a 25-year-old voter restriction imposed on black men alone because of business interests in good part that wanted to favor pro-slavery concerns in the South. It's, it's such an interesting part of the story because when, when I was reading the preface of the book, that didn't pop out immediately, but when it did come there in the book, I thought that was so interesting. Mm. And that's just a small part of this very larger story that you've written. And I want you to describe in your own words what you you see what this book is about. Oh, it's about um, Garrett Smith himself, who gave the land away, 120,000 acres to 3,000 black New Yorkers in 1846 and seven. Um, he called it a scheme of justice and benevolence, and that was aptly named. 
his idea was to even the playing field mm. and favor very poor black men, mostly from metropolitan New York, with gifts of land in the Adirondacks, which if they worked them and brought them up to value, could meet the property restriction requirement in order to vote. If they couldn't vote, they couldn't express anti-slavery sentiments, they couldn't expect representation of their concerns. Politically, they were invisible, they were mute. So mm -hmm. this was a way to gain black New York a voice. Which is such like a, when I heard about this book first, I thought it was just about this kind of like settlement movement in the Adirondacks. Uh -huh. And to see this political kind of like inspiration behind it, was so interesting to me that there were so many different layers as to what was happening around that time. That's that's the part of the story we didn't see coming when yeah. I started to, when I started to first um, research it. I thought it was just a settlement story and a very small story at that. When I dug into what inspired Smith and all of the black reformers who came on board to help him with this effort, it was a political story. And it was a story of black enfranchisement and black empowerment and black property ownership, all of those things. You know, the irony of, of you and I, two white people talking about this very deep black history in the Adirondacks is not lost on me. Mm -hmm. How did you uh, balance that while you were writing the book uh, about this black history? You know, how did you approach that? I assured myself that history changes every minute. And even before my book went to the press, I was learning things I wished I had included. Mm. Um, Whatever I write will be superseded very quickly by other voices bringing their own singular perspectives to this, and that's going to include many more black voices that have um, taken this up before, and I'm excited for that displacement. <laughs> I hope it doesn't happen in a year. I hope I get 10 or more but out of my book, but I can see this coming, absolutely. Yeah, I, mean, I welcome to, it. Yeah, to be honest with you, your book is kind of one of the first of its kind. And it's exciting for me to think that you're right, that this will inspire more and more research into this, and we yeah. can find out more and more about this rich history in the Adirondacks that we just don't know all that much about. But you write in the preface of the book that the research was going to be quite a hurdle to overcome because mm. that being so long ago, there isn't a lot of tangible evidence. There's there nothing. Yeah, exactly. There's Zippo. So yeah. how did you start? Um, you go to paper. Mm. I mean, you look on the ground. There's no, there's no um, material culture left on the ground. There are no cabins. There are no barns. There are hardly walls. You can maybe see some sinkholes which may or may not have belonged to the grantees because right. most of the grantees who came, and not many did, didn't settle on the land they were given. Like all Adirondackers who go up there and look at land, they moved to better land as soon as they can find it. So they did yeah. that too. So I went to the archival records and to Smith's correspondence, which was enormous, and to tax records, legal documents, poll lists, school records, um, military pension files, a huge source of information, um, tax rolls down in New York State archives that yeah. described relations between black and white neighbors, and that was a world of information. You know, one thing that I, I had a question about is the eligibility that we were talking about before we started recording. Mm -hmm. So um, as we have talked about during this interview, Garrett Smith donated this land to 3,000 black New Yorkers to possibly come settle. How were they chosen? Because there must have been more than 3,000 people. Well, yeah, you bet. He had a huge 
um, network in the black reform activist community in New York, mostly in cities, and among white abolitionists too. And he picked 13 reformers, white and black, most of them black, to help him pick eligible grantees. He had strict rules of eligibility, which they shared. Mm. And they were um, evident poverty, uh, landlessness, um, physical fitness to do this. They had to be between 20 and 60. Mm. Um, good character and um, temperance abiding, um, a temperance abiding ethic. So they did not drink. No drinking was allowed. That was a sticking oh. point for many um, potential grantees who did resent being told how to live and didn't want this stricture imposing on their life, whether or not they partook yeah. of, of gin or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're right about how, it mo I don't know about most, but a lot of the grantees didn't actually come up to the Adirondacks and settle. They oh, hardly had the any land did. Exactly. They yeah. had the land deed, but they never actually <clears throat> went up. Mm -hmm. Why was that? Was it because of rules and eligibility like that? or? That's a really good question. There are several theories about that. I'll give you two, and then I'll give you mine. Um, the first one that historians promoted was, and both these theories are, are, are racialized. One is that they had to be fugitives because Garrett Smith had such intimate dealings with um, fugitive interest, helping people self-emancipate, buying the, buying the freedom of slaves he met in Washington, um, building an anti-slavery political party, the Liberty Party in New York, and that's how people knew him, the friend of the slave. Um, and those... Historians said that the grantees who came up being ex-slaves, being Southern, lacked the capacity to handle the cold. They were used to the sunny South, and um, they couldn't hack it up here. It was they were un they were African, and they were used to full bore sun all the time, and they mm. they couldn't manage the weather. The historians who did who did a little more research and realized that Smith actually was giving land to black New Yorkers. Right. Blamed it on their city habits of soft living in jobs like barbering or tailoring or waiting tables and that they were unfitted for the rigors of the Adirondack wilderness for that reason. They, they didn't have the job skills. They didn't have the strength or the planning foresight. And both explanations underscored black incapacity and unfittedness to the region, which is an important important point in its own right that will last forever in Adirondack history, yeah. uh, the idea of who belongs and who doesn't to the region. My, re my reasoning is a little more simple. I look at what agricultural historians have told us about what it cost to move to the frontier at mid-19th century. It cost $1,500. These grantees didn't have anything close to that kind of money. Right. Neither did poor white laborers, for that matter, and they couldn't afford the move. It was simply beyond their means. If they'd had that kind of money, they wouldn't have been eligible mm. for the gift of land in the first place. So Smith grievously misunderstood the depth of black poverty at this time, and that was um, a fatal mistake. So I don't want to spoil the entire book for our audience because I think there is a lot in there for them to explore. But sure. A name that kept popping up again and again as I was kind of flipping through your book is Frederick Douglass. Mm -hmm. Tell me how he plays into this. I mean, that's a very important character in American history. It is, and he was all in at the beginning. When he moved to New York from Boston, 
he um, moves to Rochester, and Garrett Smith, who really admires his oratory, his politics, and his vision, and they're completely on board with abolitionism as soon as possible, gives him a grant of land to welcome him to New York State. As Smith, I mean, Douglas is delighted, and he's, he's started this new newspaper. He begins, he starts to support this very strongly in the paper, urging the grantees to move, um, setting them up with a surveyor who turns out not to be so great, but that's another story. <laughs> and then getting anxious when the exodus doesn't occur and pointing out that they need money, they need help. But he doesn't, it seems to me, approach Garrett Smith directly and say, can you help them at this point with, with money gifts as well as land? They can't make that next hurdle if they aren't capitalized right. at the outset. And by the a few years in, he's disavowed black farming completely and says in a letter, for whatever reason, black city people are just not interested in farming. Mm. And so I don't support a full bore farming effort of any kind. So he backs away, which is the last thing the grantees on the frontier, I'm sure, want to read in their favorite <laughs> newspapers, their best champion sort of cutting them off. It's such an interesting story, and I love it even more because it's part of our state's history. Me too. Exactly. Yeah. I love New York. Amy Godin, author of The Black Woods from Cornell University Press. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that was my Capitol colleague, Dan Clark, speaking with Amy Godin, author of The Black Woods, Pursuing Racial Justice on the Adirondack Frontier. Well, that about does it for us here at New York Now this week. If you missed any of today's program, want to revisit past episodes, or explore our web extras, check out our website. Again, that's nynow.org. I'm David Lombardo. From all of us at WMHT, thanks for watching this week's edition of New York Now. Funding for New York Now is provided by WNET.